Welcome to Snakes and Otters, a pointless discussion of eternal questions. Get ready, we're about to live in your head rent-free. Hello, Otterites. Welcome to episode 132. I am Martin. And I'm Robert. And I'm Francis. And I still have not figured out why I don't use contractions when I introduce myself, but you guys do. I think Francis did not use a contraction that time. I was uh, listening, and I don't think he did. I did. Uh, really? I, but it okay. was... Uh, uh, I blew through it a little bit quickly there, so it's very possible. But uh, no, it's uh, I've always used it. You've always used it. It just kind of happens that way. And I, what, what's up with you? I, I, I don't think know. it's the formal beginning. You know, it's got to be. I that. guess so. I guess because I'm first. Right. I, I don't use the contraction. Okay, Maybe. it's that's fine. Maybe you're just more uptight than the both of us. That's probably also true. <laughs> <laughs> I would take that bet. Yes, I'm, that I'm bet. kind of like I'm kind of like Chef in uh, um, South Park. Not South Park. I'm sorry. Um, Apocalypse Now. Oh, oh, yeah, wrap, yeah. Wrapped too, too tight for, tight for, for, for New Orleans. Orleans. That's right. Probably wrapped too. Yeah, wrapped too tight for Vietnam. Uh, probably, probably wrapped too, too tight, tight for, for New Orleans. Orleans. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So. Yeah, uh, that's that's played a, by one of our favorite actors, Freddie Forrest. Yes, yes. A peek behind the curtain, Otterites. Martin's the the wound up tight one. <laughs> I think by now they know that. <laughs> Already after, say that. after 130 episodes, they got that part right. So 132. Um, this uh, is our history episode. First week of the month. First for, Friday of the yes, month. Yes, for December, and of course, it is the 80th. Correct? 80th, yes. The 80th anniversary of the attack on Pearl Harbor. So, of course, that is our... entrance of the U.S. into the World War II. Yes, right. So, of course, that is our topic, infamy, the attack on Pearl Harbor. Yes, we're kind of doing the beginning at the end, in many ways. But how could we do otherwise? Exactly. Because of where it falls on the calendar, we had to do this one now. Yes. Yes. So we're kind of... And that's okay. We're good with that. And this pretty much will wrap up uh, World War II episodes. Again, we spent pretty much all of 2021, for the most part... On our history episodes during World War Two, right? We interspersed a few other things. Yeah, other we we popped a couple in there. Of course, one of my favorites was "Kiss My Drunk Russian Ass," our our examination of the ninety-one Russian coup. Oh, well, yes. So that was that was a favorite. So, guys, um, Pearl Harbor is a pretty complicated thing when you scratch past the surface. It is. You know, you you think, oh well, you know, it was just a surprise attack, and then we were in the war. But like anything, there's more going on than initially you'd, you'd guess. That's right. It's complicated. It's, right. I mean, Trevor Slattery makes his appearance very early in this episode. Yes, he does. That's right. You know, it became a caricature of the, the dishonest Oriental and the shifty Japanese attacking us. But it's... In a way... It's not. That's not it. No. In a way... You know, this is a modern version, not nearly to the extent and not nearly to the, the almost evil purpose of the lost cause myth uh, or of the, the German, we were stabbed in the back at the end of World War One, kind of a thing. Right, right. You know, because we were attacked, I mean, we were attacked first. We were trying to sit out the war. Now, granted, we were helping the, the, the allies in Europe. But, yeah. you know, we were essentially sitting things out no matter how much many of us wanted to, to be in the war. Right. So we were attacked. But there's a lot of questions around whether or not we allowed ourselves to be attacked in the Pacific. Yeah. Because, I mean, there was a headline a week before, literally a week before, that said, uh, and I forget the paper, but it said, Japan may attack this weekend. And 
you know, this is November 30th was, I think, the date on it. So we knew they wanted to attack us. Yeah. We expected it. Yeah. Well, we knew that negotiations were for sure going nowhere. Right. And those negotiations, here's the, the setup is, of course, in the 20s, Japan had wanted to be a part of the international community very greatly. Uh, they participated in the League of Nations yes, after the war. They participated in a great number of uh, treaty negotiations and all these things like, um, you know, naval limitations and all that. They were very uh, much engaged on the world stage after World War One, But a lot of that came to Zippo, Buckets, nothing. And they began an expansion program in the 30s. Became more militaristic. Um, of course, invaded China. Um, and then and, you, you get and to. And what the, kind of cojones does that take when you think about the size difference? That's right. Well, and they but held it. it. <laughs> and they held but it. they also knew, too, that China was a shambled mess. True. It, it was a. It, quite if there a was disaster. ever a time for Japan to be able to attack China, it was yeah. in the 1930s. And, they, and, you know, everybody else had a piece of China. Why shouldn't Japan have a piece? Was kind of their reasoning. Yeah. True. You know, and they knew that the modern world, you needed resources. And that's it's what this was a drive towards. Ding, ding, ding. That's, that's if you resources. want to boil it down to the real reasons, yes, that's where it was it's at. Oil. You have to understand that. So that leads to their expansion into uh, Indochina, uh, the South Pacific, their eyeball in the Philippines, and we know this. Right. And then you get to the middle 30s, and of course you have the 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 infamous and horrible rape of Nanking. Yeah. Uh, and. It becomes clear that Japan sort of turning its back on the rest of the world, and it's kind of like, well, we're going to do what we please, and we don't care what you think anymore. Well, again, I think you have to understand the the Japanese mindset is not the same as the Western mindset when it comes to these things. You know, the, yeah. the cultural differences today are great between the Western world and Japan, even though they are far less. They they are a quasi Western culture now. Yeah. But eighty years ago. It was totally different. Honor was the only thing that mattered. And by kind of being not quite shut out, but you know, by not being treated the same, to them it was going to be a matter of honor. And their whole idea of honor and warfare especially revolved around whether or not you were truly human. Mm-hmm. You know, if you lost, you had no dignity, no honor. You were no longer worthy of being a person. So, when you take that attitude into war, you're going to see things like the rape of Nanking. I mean, it flows one from the other. Yeah, if you can't stand up for yourself, right? Then what's your point? Exactly. You, you know, don't, you are you don't need to exist uh, in a very, in a way, it's a very Nietzschean uh, outlook. Yeah. Yeah. You are either the master or the slave. Yeah. There yeah. was no in between. And you know, on our part, it's not like we were angels the whole time either. No. No. Uh, you know, racial prejudice seeking to exclude the Japanese from from immigrating to the West Coast. Um, that was part of what was going on in the twenties, and and all of these negotiations and treaties, and trying to figure out, hey, can we have a good relationship with the United States? Um, but by the time of the thirties, it's basically they're going to grab anything they can get a hold of, hold it, and we don't care. And they knew then that this is putting them on a collision course with the United States. Correct. Um, 
And they eventually got to the point of war is inevitable. We're going to strike first and try to knock out the United States with a, with an immediate death blow. Uh, and, of course, the place to do that is Hawaii. Right, because if you take away Hawaii, you know, we have to operate, operate from the West Coast. That's damn near impossible to do effectively. You've got to have a forward base to be able to operate. Yeah. It's got to be secure. Yeah. And that is the whole point of Hawaii. It was a forward operating spot to help protect the Philippines and the rest of the Pacific. Right. They, they decided that the Philippines was untenable as a forward base, but they thought Hawaii would be fine. They thought it's far enough away that, you know, woo doggies, it's going to take something to hit Hawaii. But the Philippines were exposed. Right. And that became U.S. doctrine. Yeah, yeah, too close. Plus the Philippines, all those islands, that's a lot harder to defend than, you know, just a handful of islands in, in Hawaii. Yeah. So, the interesting part to me in this build-up uh, to the attack, and I, I'll kick this out here for you guys to kick around a little bit, but in, in researching this, Obviously, the Japanese are very, very modern in their navy at this point. As far as the, as far as what they have, again, there's six top-line aircraft carriers. Right. Um, but the doctrine they're still working from, though, is this classic Alfred Mayer. I'm getting his name wrong. Alfred Thayer Mahan right. doctrine of It'll come down to a great battle between the capital ships, the the, the battleships. Jutland. Exactly. Jutland or Trafalgar and all this right. all this steeped in history doctrine is what the um, the the Japanese admirals grew up in. This is what they know. Yet their greatest success <laughs> was done with the new weapon, the aircraft carrier. Right. Um, and, of course, the aircraft carriers are not present. The U.S. carriers, only three of them, they're not present in Hawaii. But the Japanese didn't think that was a big deal. The target was the battleships. Right. And yet, looking back on it, that, you know, and movies and discussion post all that zeroes in on a while, they should have known better. No, they shouldn't. Because, as you say, they're working out of a different playbook altogether. Well, yeah. they're working out, but they're not working out a different playbook at this in this particular battle. It's entirely a carrier-based battle, but their overall doctrine is yeah. it's going to take the battleships, which, as we talked about show prep, how odd that yeah. you're trying to make your decisive blow to knock us out of the war, and you're not even bringing your battleships to the, to the fight. I mean, they were probably there with the fleet, with the, the carriers, but you know, the, battle, the battleships had nothing to do with this fight. Absolutely nothing. Other than being the target, the U.S. battleships are the target. Right, I mean the Japanese Yeah, ones but were. the Japanese yeah. ones. Well, that's what so they wanted to avoid, so, I think. So they, they did not uh, want that prolonged battle because they didn't think they had a sustainability. I don't know. I, I, I think if they were willing to attack with the, the aircraft carriers, I think if, if the American fleet had met them in the open seas, I think they would have gladly gone ahead and attacked. They obviously are better off attacking them on a Sunday morning when everybody is just waking up and they're all docked in a nice, neat row. 
So if you miss one target, you're sure to get the next guy. Oh yeah, it's it's a dream in many yeah. respects. If you're going to do it, if you're going to yeah, make a preemptive I, strike, right? If you're going to present that kind of target, of course that's where you're going to strike first. Right. And tactically, the attack on Pearl Harbor is a huge success. Yes. Again, they hit what they were aiming for. That's right. They. they but they, did they aim for the right thing? Exactly. Well, that's that's a question of strategy. Yes. Well, and if they had, and you know, there were like with any battle, so many things had to go right. And if just a few things that had gone right for them that were incidental had gone wrong, it could very well have been a, a different outcome. You know, the U.S., uh, unbeknownst to the, the foreign powers, has a much more advanced radar than anybody realizes. And so they're expecting this flight of bombers coming in from the mainland. Mm. So when they see all these planes show up over Hawaiian, it's no big deal. Oh, those are the planes we're expecting. Yeah. No, they're not. You know, think about that. If they hadn't been expecting those bombers, could they have gotten planes scrambled? Could they have deflected enough of the attack? Would they have seen it for what it was? Would they have seen it? Yeah, well, if they're There's, not expecting any planes, yeah. It would have taken them a little bit quicker to be, uh, to figure it out. You're right. Uh, so, I mean, it may not have made a huge difference, yeah. but it might have made enough of a difference that, you know, they don't press the attack as heavily as they did. And some think they didn't press it enough, because as we talked about, they left things untouched. Yeah, there, there was a press for a third wave. But doctrinally, uh, the admiral in charge just was like, well, that means if we hit a third wave, that means bringing them back at night. We don't do, that was not part of their doctrine, was night landings on the carriers. So he withdrew after two waves of attack. Um, but uh, yeah, again, the, in targeting the battleships, that means they left the fuel depot alone. Mm-hmm. which Nimitz said if they had hit that, that would put us behind at least a year, maybe two. Uh, they left all kinds of dock facilities alone. Um, right, if they had destroyed some dry docks, that could have been, been huge, another year. Another, Yeah, huge. And one of the buildings that they didn't touch in the basement is the famous crypt analyst unit uh, that would go on to be so important in Midway. right. right. Which is interesting because at this time, you know, and maybe they thought it wasn't important because at this time in Hawaii, they weren't actually allowed to, to do a whole lot of this because there's not a whole lot of funding. Their crypto analysis is a very young uh, yeah. science to begin young with. Young idea. And it's understaffed, undermanned, and because of the usual territorial battles, that was something that wasn't even allowed to be done there. So it's very minimal, that kind of work, but it would go on to play a huge, important part. Yeah. Uh, and, and another a big key here, too, again, is this, um, the Americans are more concerned about sabotage than yes. an attack. And in doing so, arrange the planes on the ground where they're easy targets. <laughs> Instead of inside, you know, hardened hangars or anything like that. Right. They want them out in the open, so it's harder to approach for a saboteur. But hey, guess what? All I got to do is come down the line... And strafe all these planes and they'll all blow up. Yeah. So hundreds of planes are destroyed on the ground. Um, the battleships are sunk. Again, in, in a tactical sense, as far as their aims of the attack, huge success. Right. Huge right. success. And in a, in a ground war, and a, a win like that would have been followed up immediately. Yes. Because you would have troops on the ground. But because we're talking about thousands of miles between their home bases and the point of attack and our home bases 
in the point of attack, it's very difficult to support a follow-on attack. So, you know, that's one of the things we always like to talk about when we talk about those what-ifs. Yeah. Well, what if they had gone ahead and, inv- and invaded? Yes, that is, that's the, the huge strategic failure. Uh, again, not hitting, like, the fuel depots and the dry docks and some of these other facilities that supported the aircraft carriers, but also no invasion. That would have made all the difference. Had they, had they been prepared for that, and that had been their strategy, there's pro- they would have taken that whole, yeah. that whole island group very quickly. It would have been bloody. It had been a mess. It had been a mess. mess. But they could have done it. They could have done oh, it. Absolutely. They could have done and it. And that would and have then changed. we're stuck. And then we're stuck. We're, right. we're having to invade it, staging on the West Coast. That's right. And that's, um, yeah. But it, it's that would have been, it w- we could have done it, but it would have taken probably, it would have lengthened the war in the Pacific to even get back to where we started from by probably two years. Yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. At least. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, some of the, it's a huge mess. Some of the best alternative history fiction I've read uh, revolves, includes this. You know, Japan invades Hawaii. Yeah. Uh, and more than one story, that's always, it always happens. That because when you think about it, why wouldn't you? Yeah. But you got to realize the other thing they're doing is they're still in China and they want the Philippines. Yes, because the Philippines are attacked simultaneous exactly. to the Pearl Harbor attack. So my sense is they couldn't do all three at the same time. Because right. Japan yeah. is not that big. Uh, even though it is a very militaristic society, you right. still have that's all that's huge to be able to do. Uh, it's an enormous China, of Philippines, and Pearl Harbor to attack and occupy all of those at the same time. So right. I think that probably has a lot to do with why they didn't. That's right, because right. again, the, doctrinally, they think the decision is not the aircraft carriers, but the battleships. And if we can sink the battleships in harbor, then an invasion is not necessary. Right. We'll get what we want, and they'll have to give up. Wrong answer, of course. But, yeah, and and that's strategically a huge mistake. And, again, it ties to this naval guru that everybody based their, their strategies on, this Alfred Thayer Mahan. Um, Destroyer know, was named after him, by the way. Uh, it was one of the old four-stackers between the two wars, but there was a USS Mahan. Uh, even Theodore Roosevelt was a huge fan um, yeah. of, of this doctor. Well, yes. And, uh, Teddy liked the big stick. You know. <laughs> well, yeah, the Great White Fleet, it was all based on that. Yes. You know, bring your, and some of this goes back to the Dreadnought when it was launched and everything changed. And then all of a sudden you've got all this business of, oh, wait a minute. This is, it, you yeah. know, it's prestige. Well, it's, it's also, practically, when you think about it, if, you know, when we think of Europe, we always think of land wars. There's not real a whole lot of coastal or sea battles that go on except over supply lines and what have you. But when you think about taking your navy someplace to fight, uh, the ability to bombard the shore installations, the docks and so so forth, from you know, 10, 20, 30 miles offshore uh, is very much akin to an air attack. Yeah. So it, strategically, it's and tactically, I mean, it's, it's an incredibly effective weapon, mm-hmm. but... It, in reality, there's not a whole lot of a whole lot of places you can actually apply it. Oddly enough, Pearl Harbor is one they could have brought the battleships and done this. If they yeah. brought the battleships along, now they would have had to bring in the the carriers and the fleet a lot closer. Uh, might have turned into an all-out melee, and you know they might not have been able to get that close. But if they had been able to get in close enough to to bring in those battleships to bear, who knows what kind of havoc they could have wreaked? 
Yeah, again, it's it's a it's a tactical success, but a strategic failure. Yeah, and what happens, of course, is that the Americans become the masters of the combined arms of the idea of your air power is not by itself, infantry is not by itself, right. the navy is not by itself. The island hopping campaign, you know, becomes this feat of combined arms. You're using your air power effectively. You're using, uh, you know, ironically, these battleships that were thought of as the be-all, end-all, they become just artillery platforms. Mm -hmm. They're just floating artillery platforms. Which essentially is what they really are. That's right. I yeah. mean, well, but they, that's but how they, they were used, used against, that yeah, they well, ended up being very, used against the land. It's a very Napoleonic approach. Yeah. Very much so. And that's, and that's the whole reason the battleships were created, because you're thinking back to the, day, the age of sail, Trafalgar and all that stuff, one of the problems was once they got into harbor, you can't get them. Once and you have to blockade and all that stuff like that. The British were great with all that sort of stuff. If you can destroy them from afar, then all of a sudden that advantage goes right. away. And Napoleon, to shift gears, Napoleon on the ground was a master of combined forces: artillery, yeah. infantry, and cavalry done in perfect synchronization. Right. Normally, and, and the Americans Normally. end up inheriting that mantle. That's right. Yeah, uh, because they use the infantry, uh, amphibious infantry, with using the uh, battleships as bombardment of the they have of more the islands than Napoleon. Yeah, had, right. And well, then using the air. You know, we really we don't think about it much because you know we think about warfare. We think you know, army does the stuff on the ground, navy does the stuff at sea, and you know, at this time they both have planes. Uh, but you know, when you think about the war in the Pacific. The water is carried by the Navy almost entirely because mm -hmm. it's mainly Marines yep. and the Naval Forces, ships and Naval Air Forces. Yep. So that, that's all under the Department of the Navy. And they really do carry the water, so to speak, uh, in, in the Pacific. And right. it's phenomenal that they managed to. I mean, there are some Army units in the Pacific, mm -hmm. but most of them are in the East. They're in the, uh, they're in the European War and the African War. That's right. Because realistically, you don't need as many ground units in the Pacific, because you're not going you're up against million-man armies. Yeah, you're yeah. going, you know, island by island. You're going against twenty, thirty thousand, forty thousand Japanese at a time. Your Marines can handle that, because you know they're Marines. <laughs> they're Marines. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's that's a. There were army divisions attached. Yes, and, and in these amphibious operations, so. Uh, well, we gotta give everybody their due. Yeah, well, I, and I said that, you know, but yeah. you know, the Marines do carry the, the they do the, they the do. brunt of it. Yeah. Um, so, fellas, uh, I think at, at 22 minutes, this is a good stop for a bourbon break, and then awesome. we'll talk aftermath of the battle. So we are Otterites. I, I'm so excited to welcome the fellas back to Studio M. We are comfy. Uh, Robert's in the recliner, and Francis and I are on the couches. And uh, we are very mellowed back. We are trying a couple of new bourbons uh, today here, or one new bourbon in this episode. Yeah. It's called Stonehammer. Uh, it's named for Thomas Metcalf, a former governor of Kentucky. Um, this is uh, this is over a mid price. Uh, it's I think if I'm reading the internet correctly, and of course everything you read on the internet is always right. That's right. Yeah, Abraham Lincoln told us that. Yes. Yeah. Um, this is a Kroger exclusive, and that is where I bought it, in the Kroger uh, liquor shop. Um, 
It's about a $23, $24 bottle. So again, kind of at that, that mid-price mid point, similar to, say, the Four Roses. and Small batch, yeah. Yeah, some of that other. Yeah, I mean, probably that's even a little bit on the lower end price-wise yep. uh, of that. Uh, I mean, certainly not your, you know, VOB kind of, yeah. you know, but it's it's in the, the of that mid-range, it's a little bit lower price range. It does is, have a cork, and it is in glass. Which, so it's, it's not... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, I like that plastic screw top one. That's right. Uh, yeah, I don't think we've had a plastic screw top bottle yet, which no. is good. No. Uh, but you know, I've said this before, and the more that I try different bourbons, uh, I've noticed that the bottles really can be an indication. Not always, but they can be an indication of the quality of the bourbon. If you're going to put the time and effort into the bottle, I think you've probably put the time and effort into the bourbon, and I would say that is true of this one as well. It's a good-looking bottle, by the way. It is, yes, absolutely. It really is. The cork is big and honking, and it's got a... Kind it's got of good a, lines. Yeah, good lines. and uh, it's, it's, it's got uh, a bluff bow, as Jack Aubrey would say, and uh, fine so, seabird when she's handled well. So I've, uh, I've poured mine over ice. Francis did soapstone, and Robert did neat. Yes, yeah, so we actually have three different ways to taste this. Right. So, um, unfortunately for the me, the nose was a little heavy with medicine. Smell. I did pick that a little, up. It didn't a little, bother me, a little antiseptic. Yeah, yeah. But still, the the flavor is smooth, nice and warm in the esophagus. Really hangs with you. Uh, I think ice is important for this one. I think it helps mellow it quite a bit. I'm looking forward to trying it with ice because, as you know, I tend to have mine with ice or the steel balls or the snow uh, soapstones. Uh, so trying to mix it up. Yeah, but it, it mellowed out quite a bit after. Uh, Yes. After the first snort, as the, as the ice melts. But, um, again, very comparable to a Four Roses. Four Roses probably a little smoother, a little mellower. Yes, I would say a little smoother, yes. Um, you know, it's, uh, it's not harsh like a devil's cut, uh, but you notice it more than you do uh, some of the others, like a Basil Hayden. It's so smooth, it's like, oh my gosh. Yeah. It, I mean, this thing stays in the back of the throat for a while. It does. It, do, it does. And it takes a while to make its way yeah. down to your stomach. It does. That's uh, right. As far as the, the effect, that burn, that warmth. Mine doesn't, mine doesn't go up. I've drink. I've taken several drinks of it now. It's always down. But you've had I've a different I've got a little experience. bit hint in the, the, the nasal uh, uh, passage, just a little, a little bit, bit in the, the back. Sinus, yeah. Not every drink uh, that I've sipped uh, has done that, but I still have it, uh, which again is interesting, I, which I don't mind. Uh, it just depends on the effect. Uh, in that, it's maybe a little harsher than than I would prefer, but it's not bad. Uh, it is a good bourbon. It's a very light colored bourbon. It, it, they must not have charred the uh, the barrels very heavily. Uh, how many years is this aged? It does not say uh, as far as a, an age statement. Oh, that's uh, and and lots of lots of bourbons don't do age statements. Um, but of course, it has to be at least two years. Right. That and that's a bare minimum. Two years is probably going to be on your bottom shelf. So yeah, I would it, say this is probably a two-year age. It, it shows, you know, the light shows through. I don't know. The I color very, you know, it, it's it's almost like it's a. It almost looks the color of iced tea. Uh, yeah, very, very weak yeah. iced tea. Weak yeah. iced tea. Yeah. yeah. I would bet this is aged more than two, uh, just because it is pretty smooth. Um, you know, it's not. It's a little bit more complex than. Uh, something like a very old Barton, which you know is my go-to uh, example of the the low end bourbon. Yeah. yeah. Uh, anything. Anytime you get a 
good hunk of bourbon for only ten dollars. It's low end, but, but it's still old, bourbon. Old Granddad's very similar. Yes, Old Granddad. Yes, they're, they're both um, down at the bottom, but you know, hey, they're still good. Yeah, we'll have to figure out what the aging is. But I'm betting this is a four or six year bourbon. I would say four. I would say four max. Yeah. Uh, but it is it is local here to uh, to Louisville. Uh, but Stonehammer, a Kroger exclusive. It's got a great a, name. You can't beat that. Yeah. Oh, yes. And a very, again, a very agreeable price point. Uh, but not something stellar. If you find something else at that same price point, I wouldn't argue with you. Right. I'd probably choose the the, the uh, Four Roses small batch over this, uh, or even the regular. Uh, I'd choose the 1792 over it uh, as well, which is also in that mid-20s. Yeah. Uh, a little bit more yeah. than this, but I'm yeah, just, it's hard I'm, to beat this. I'm just glad that I'm not getting that huge antiseptic taste. Again, right. I got I got a touch of it on the nose for the smell, but at least on the flavor, I'm not getting that. Yeah, I think so that burn that I that I'm getting in my nasal passage is that antiseptic bit, but it's very mild when, yeah. when you get it to me because I, I can only get the hint of the uh, uh, the antiseptic when I when I give it a, a good sniff. I like to sniff the bourbon before I taste it. Yes, you gotta, uh, gotta get the I, nose. I think just like with wine, I think you need to get the fragrance. And get that nose uh, up in there. Yeah, get the, get oneself prepared. Yes, get a good experience. snort before you take a snort. So, Robert, how are you doing with uh, with uh, soft drinks? Still keep them cut out? Uh, yes, tomorrow will be two months exactly. Excellent. Uh, since I've had a, a soft drink. So Francis is snorkeling a, a, a soft drink right now. So we're really side by side. Side by side. That's yes. correct. A chaser, one might say, but not really. When I, well, I j- often have water, uh, or when I was still drinking soft yes. drinks, uh, just to, to mix it up, especially yeah. earlier in the day. Yes. Uh, you know. But uh, I've been considering what we've discussed about the sugar and about that heavy sweetness yeah. and, and the effect on the taste buds. Are, are you really feeling like your palate's clearing up? I don't know. I, you know, I don't drink bourbon that often. I mean, none of us drink probably except when we're, when yeah, we're hanging out together yeah, very often. Pretty much, yeah. Uh, but because of that, it's a little bit hard to say whether or not it's truly making a difference as far as the bourbon. Uh, maybe a bit, but in general, I don't know. Um, what about yeah, I still drink things? sweet stuff. So yeah, I don't know if the that's... sweetness is still overpowering it. Yeah. Uh, be- I, I don't have a whole lot of carbonation. Yeah, uh, I drink a ton of water during the day, so even though I'm drinking sweet stuff, it's not a whole lot. Yeah, like I'll have coffee in the morning, and I'll put a, a caramel sweetener in it. Yeah, uh, when I you know yeah. I, I'll have uh, Crystal Light sometimes during the day, which is going to be sweet, but not not super sweet. Uh, I don't have anything that is overwhelmingly sweet like soft drinks. Yeah, uh, I don't know. I just sure. I've been rethinking this, and and maybe my initial. You know, thing was just wrong. Maybe, I, maybe it's maybe the corn syrup doesn't ruin your palate. Perhaps I just have a far superior tongue to both of you guys. I knew he was going to go there. Yeah, God, if that wasn't the longest setup I've ever heard, <laughs> but effective, effective, but effective. effective that's correct. I'm just, a, I'm just a silver tongue devil, and I can, I'm getting all these good flavors. Well, that that could very well, or be. maybe it's just time because I mean, I that is something I, I don't sweeten coffee. Uh-huh. I do like my good black coffee, yeah. and when I cut the soft drinks out, I did move pretty much to completely to unsweet tea. Right, which I, I mean, I'm not a huge tea person, but I couldn't imagine doing unsweetened tea. Mm. I can't imagine doing unsweetened coffee. Uh, for me, coffee is either too watery or too bitter. 
you know, so. But I like, I've always liked my sweet drinks. So well, that's it. It's hard to cut back. But, you know, I am not drinking as much sweet stuff as I used to. So, you know, it, maybe it just, just more time. longer. Yeah. Maybe just a little more time. A little you know, more nothing time. else, you know, I, but, I find that I'm not even missing the carbonation as much. Yeah. Uh, I did, I do drink those sparkling iced lemonades, uh, but I don't have those all the time either. So. All right. Well, that was, a, that was a good 10-minute bourbon break for me to, to make that joke about my tongue yeah, being better. 10-minute than... setup. <laughs> oh, the pain, the pain. But I'll, so, I'll give you that one. That was a good setup. You know, okay. Aftermath. Yeah, aftermath. Aftermath of the aftermath. attack. So, again, where do we go from here? Where do, where? It's a strategic failure. A tactical yeah. success, a strategic failure. But you're, they really don't know this. it's a strategic failure until... You can make the argument they know it as early as midway, just six months later. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say, that That seems um, to be, all of a sudden, it was like, that's the, oh shit, what did we just do? Moment. Yeah, I mean, very famously, uh, um, Yamamoto tells the senior staff, we've, we've wakened a sleeping giant. We yeah. haven't knocked them out. Like we thought. That's we right. You have, yeah, you have we, to kill them. Yeah. Otherwise... The idea here was to hit them so hard at Pearl that they want to quit. And they're not quitting. But that's an underestimation of the American psyche. It yeah. is. Very true. It really is because if they had been hit like that and suffered a devastating defeat, that would have been a blow to their national honor, identity, and dignity. And... That would have been, I think, a serious setback for them. Uh, now, they probably wouldn't have told anybody, because, you know, very militaristic. It's not like they had newsies all over the place uh, on, on battleships yeah. and, and aircraft yeah. carriers. No, but, no embedded reporters. Right, no embedded reporters. So it may not have weakened the resolve of the Japanese people, because there was no resolve of the Japanese people. They just did what they were told. Right. But with the Americans... You know, we're still only 50 years removed from the Wild West. And I think that's an important thing to consider as well. Yep. You know, we yep. are still a relatively untamed... Hell, we're still a relatively untamed country. <laughs> Just go to Chicago, for God's sake. You know, we are still, at this time, uh, full of vim and vigor, or piss and vinegar, whichever one you want, whichever way yeah. you want to put right. it. And... The American psyche is very much, if you punch me in the nose, when I get back up, I'm going to kick your ass. Well, it's yeah. the Alamo, uh, which that's the exemplar. If, that's the one point, if they had studied that, they would have come up with a completely different answer as to the American character. Yes. That's an easy one to, to pull right out because it's so well known, it's so well documented, and it's so clear as to A plus B equals C. But, but again, yeah. they do what we do, though. Yeah. And they applied their own standards to the enemy. That's right. And, and that is probably one of the biggest downfalls of every loser in a war. They underestimated their enemy because they thought the enemy was just like them. Sun Tzu, yeah. know thy enemy and know thyself, and you will always be victorious. They did not follow that. Right, right. Well, they, they thought they did. Yeah. There is, you know. Well, yeah, their assumptions were totally different. Right. Well, that's why, you know, when we fought the war in the Pacific, our assumptions about them were totally... Even though, you know, we had seeing where they were going uh, and how they went about things, our assumptions about them were totally different. When our men were captured, they expected to be treated differently than they were. Yeah. Uh, We we expected the Japanese on those islands to surrender, not to fight to the last man. So 
on both sides, it was a total, totally erroneous outlook. Yeah, yeah. yeah uh, the cultural tagging was off. Yeah, even as different as we were from the Germans in the war in Europe, we were they were still more like us because yes. it was the same culture, uh, root culture, European yeah. culture. Uh, and, and maybe that's what made what they did so much more heinous to us because we saw ourselves in them. Uh, that's a good point. You know, the Japanese, yeah. what they did in China was, you know, you can argue that it was just as bad, just as horrible. It wasn't a systematic... But right. it was just as brutal. Right. It wasn't as industrialized. Yeah. And there was a, a whole set of war crimes trials uh, uh, for the Asian or the for the Pacific Theater, um, and and Japanese leaders were hung for their actions. Uh, if you do the, the one, war. you can't do the you can't yeah. not do the others. So. so, but you but which one gets the press? A lot of people don't realize that there was a Europe era Pacific Theater. War Crimes Tribunal. Now, you know, obviously, you know, the war in Europe got the most press, period. So, I mean, that's understandable. But, you know, even to this day, we focus on the Nazi atrocities. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And maybe that's just because they, they hit too close to home. I don't it's, know. It's documented. There, it's... True. Wow. It's, you know, and right, it is European. It is, again, we look in the mirror, we see somebody that looks just like a German. Uh, you right. know, we look, we see... Somebody that looks like us. So one other thing I want to kick around before we before we finish up this episode, uh, and and Robert hinted at this in our open, the conspiracy theories. Yes. Uh, no historian really gives these things serious weight. Uh, that that it was a setup. Uh, that Roosevelt, Franklin Roosevelt, yeah, was was, was in on it. Um, you know, but. As far as needing an excuse to get in the war, yeah, Roosevelt had to wait for something. Yes. He couldn't just declare war. He did not have the will of the people that far. Right. Right. Well, we were very much an isolationist. uh, That had been our history, although we did have World War I as a precedent. Well, so we were attached to, you know, in in the... And we finally used that as the excuse to go, but, you know, there were... Uh, attacks on American uh, ships in the Pacific or in the uh, the European War prior to the declaration of war. Right. And yet we still didn't go to war. We still didn't declare war against Germany even after uh, attacks uh, in the North Atlantic. Right. The USS Kearney and uh, the the other one which was sunk. um, Was that the Reuben James? Yes, the Reuben James, yes. So this being a direct attack against the naval facility at, at Pearl Harbor. And it's massive. Civilians die, military yeah. people Yeah, it's 3,000 plus casualties. So, yeah, I mean, if, if you look at it from a cynic's point of view, it was just what Roosevelt needed. At the exact right at the, time. At the right. right moment. And, you know, there are some that argue that while, you know, he that if you want to go with the conspiracy theories, that he thought something was coming... But that he had no idea it would be this bad, and so the misjudgment on his part was not so much in allowing it, but not expecting it to be as bad as it was, yeah. and therefore being a little bit more prepared. But the you know the kind of the thought is the Americans were deliberately torpedoing these negotiations with the Japanese to make sure the Japanese were provoked into an attack, 
that seems like a bridge too far to me. Yeah. I, I mean, diplomatic negotiations fail all the time. It happens. You know, well, they're, what they were trying to do was just against American interests, and it just became too far to go. And that was always the case. And that's, yeah. I mean, negotiations were almost laughable in many respects yeah. because we both wanted the same thing. We right. wanted the oil fields. The and oil again, fields. There's only the so key. much. Yeah. Well, again, though, you can, you can, uh, it's the spin, really. I mean, you know, I, I'm, just, I'm just playing devil's advocate here. Yeah. Uh, you could say that, well, you're just putting a different spin on the exact same events and the exact same intentions. Yeah. Yeah. Because, the U.S. wasn't going to give in, so do you want to call that torpedoing the negotiations? You could. Good. Because could. if your goal is peace at any cost, that's torpedoing the negotiations. Ah, right. oh, well, yeah, there's where you kind of get into. But this you're right. I that's mean, very Neville Chamberlain. Yeah, type it's, stuff. it's very much a uh, again the oil fields, the 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 East Indies, the oil fields. Um, the oil embargo it's was seen awful. as kind of that last straw that really it's a post-colonial breaks. mindset. Yeah, we the, went into this, what, even what though really, we weren't particularly colonialist. We we had something natural resources, and we liked it. Yeah. Well, we were, but where we were colonialist was in the Japanese backyard. That's right, and exactly. that's the problem. That's, yeah, that's, I mean, it's that's the friction, um, and again the. the Oil is a huge part of this, with the with the oil embargo seen as the last straw, and and what really pushes the Japanese to feel like, well, we don't have any choice now. We've got a there's going to be a war. We might as well start it, and we've got to hit a knockout blow. We've we've got to hit one right out of the park right from the beginning. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you know they were they went about the preparation very logically with. I think a good understanding of what was required at a very high level, but they ignored all the soft factors. Uh, you know, the what we would call the soft skill kind of stuff in the, in the yeah. business world. Right. They ignored uh, the American psyche, the, the what the American response would be. They or didn't understand what it would be. They totally misrepresented to themselves uh, the nature of the American. Uh, Man, the American woman, in that, you know, we weren't going to take any crap. Yeah. You know, I mean, just because we wanted to stay out of the war doesn't mean that we wouldn't try and kick your ass if we got into it. Yeah, you know, it's always our our our. We we've said the same thing as a as a gag for thirty years of, hey, we really want to get along with you, but if you piss us off, we'll bomb your country. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> that's you know that's that's the American. Way it is kind of the American character. Hey, we really want to get along with you. We don't want to have trouble. But if you piss us off, we'll bomb your country. That's a stone from Robert Williams, actually. But yes. yes. Oh, that's where yes. that's the source. We, we Thank used you, it for so long. We've kind of thought of it as our own. Yeah. Yes. yes, it's from Robert Williams. Yes. Yeah. Thank you, Francis. I forget the, the the preamble to that, but it's basically if you piss us off, we'll bomb your city. cities. That's right. Think about it. That's right. <laughs> yeah. We're Americans. We're simple people. But if you piss us off, we'll bomb that's your cities. It Think about it. Oh, well there done, Francis. Yes. Well done. That, that's where that's where we stole it from. Yeah, Lab. that's where we stole it from. Lab but you know, yeah, it's one of those things that it's funny because it's true uh, in many ways. We're not 100% like that, but we've got enough examples in our history that that is the case. Yeah, yeah. it's not a yeah. I think we even surprised ourselves, though, in our response to the war. Because when you think, I am still astounded and just awed at what the, the Americans were able to accomplish in such a short amount of time. 
we went from having no war fighting industry. None. It was all just basic, let's maintain our, our very small military. And, and, you know, yeah, we had a, a fairly decent sized Navy in the Pacific, but it was outdated. Well, it was three carriers. I mean, it was half the size well, yeah, of the Japanese even, even, you know, the, the destroyers that we had there, yeah. the cruisers, the battleships. These are all World War One era designs for the most part. They were, they were not modern at all. The carriers were modern, so to speak, but carriers as a, as a unit of warfare was barely 20 years old. They were changing every six months. Right. I mean, you were finding out new stuff about carrier warfare all the time in the 30s. Exactly. Um, so, you know, that was... And even so, we only had three. You know, it didn't evolve that much for us. But we managed to mobilize our industry in a way that is unheard of. Right. Germany and Japan could direct their their industry from the top down. And while, yes, there was a lot of top down in the U.S., there was a hell of a lot of bottom up as well. Yeah. Well, you know... Right. Ford and GM and Chrysler, they stopped producing cars for the duration of the war. And they started producing in those car factories tanks and jeeps and planes and everything that you could possibly think of that we needed to fight the war. We were building Liberty ships, one a week. Yeah, the... Start to finish, laying the keel to getting it out into the water and into service in a week. Think about that. I mean, that it just blows my mind. Turning out things like the C-47, I think it's called the Dakota, the the, the transport aircraft, yes. just churning them out by the hundreds uh, is and a huge key. And manning all of them. Yeah, a huge key. So, so, you know, our industrial might, I think, was bigger than we even realized. Right. You're exactly right. And, yeah. you know... Japan did not, did not realize that the sleeping giant... That's yeah. really what he's referring to. Well, yes. Yamamoto had spent time in the U.S. He was he was educated in the U.S. He knew the country better than any of his compatriots. He knew we could turn on that faucet yeah. and build well, yeah, anything and everything. Well, I think he suspected it far more. I think he probably suspected more than most of us did. Yeah. And 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 that's exactly what happened. Again, we, we, we just, okay, well, let's start making shit. And, well, and, and all over the country making stuff. Uh, whatever was needed, we can make. We can invent synthetic rubber and and, and make it, and right. and just churned out all that stuff. And it, there were war bond right. rallies. There were rallies to collect scrap and old tires. And I mean, you were looked upon as practically a traitor if you bought new tires during the war for your car. And you were practically expected to run on the rims. Yeah, because uh, they just needed the, the rubber. Yeah, and the entire crucial. country was united in a way that we never saw before and still had yet to see. We saw it for a little bit after 9-11. For about a week. For about a week. <laughs> well, until until things sort of got bogged down, as the, 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 the press kept saying uh, a month after we invaded uh, Afghanistan. Yeah. Uh, but then, of course, you know, two weeks after that, it was all done. Yeah. Because we were just getting in there and getting prepared. But, you know, that didn't last long. For four years... We were as united as, as we could possibly be. I mean, there was even rationing in this country. Can you imagine trying to impose rationing in the country today? Look at what we've done in the last two years with COVID. You know, society practically broke down. We practically, you know, uh, had, 
everybody lose their minds. Well, yeah. because they couldn't find freaking toilet paper. Because right, we've, gone paper. From, we've gone from a self-sustaining localized economy where most people are on farms and and work within the local area to a just-in-time inventory universally. Yes, and, and that is the danger, of, That's the danger of, of our system. Yeah. We're too far removed from the means of production. But, I mean, even if we weren't, I, I think, you know, and maybe that would produce a different mindset, but, it, you know, it's just hard to imagine the, the country today uh, voluntarily taking on that kind of burden for more than a very short amount of time. Because, yeah. you know, people were into the COVID lockdown for just a couple of weeks and they were already going nuts. Yeah. Well, you know... The, and that was just staying home. The TikTok uh, attention span, yes. we, we just we can't handle four years of sacrifice to defeat... Uh, an enemy uh, of this nature anymore. Yeah, I mean, there's, which is again, uh, Tom Brokaw, he, he makes a, a very good argument for calling the World War II generation the greatest generation. Yeah. Uh, because they did something that, you know, has not been seen since. Yeah. Now, one other thing that I want to uh, talk about as we wrap this up, what, what's our time on this? We're at 48, so. All right, so uh, we're a little over where we wanted to be, but. We're, we're in good shape, so finish so, that thought. Unforeseen consequences of this attack literally changed the history of the world. Not just because of World War II, you know, but it it was the event that caused the Americans to truly become a world power, a superpower. Involved power. Yes. That we were sticking our nose well, in we everywhere. Were a superpower. We were a world power. Before then, because, I mean, we had the Philippines, we had Hawaii, you know, we were around. You know, nobody would want to tangle with us without being... The world's leading economy, the whole bit. Well, I don't even know that we would necessarily have been the leading economy at the time. Uh, Between the the wars, we were. Well, well, probably between the wars, because we weren't devastated like France was and and what have you. But, uh, and we, you know, we didn't have uh, quite the the 20-year depression that... uh, uh, Germany did, but you know, we still we were in the midst of a depression when the war started. Mm-hmm. So I wouldn't necessarily call us an economic powerhouse, other than we were the least affected by the the, the intervening years. But my point is, though, for being a wor- being a world power is one thing. England is a world power, but it is not a superpower. World War II made the U.S. a superpower. It directly put us on the path to uh, unarmed. Cold War conflict with the Soviet Union. Now, we were probably headed there anyways, but because the Soviet Union was in Europe, we probably expected France and England to take the, the brunt of that. That changed with World War II. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. It was no longer that. It was us versus them. Right. The they supported us as opposed to us supporting them. Yeah. A subtle language shift, but a very powerful... Well, a subtle language shift, but also a total flip that's right. in the relationship between us and the rest of the world. That's right. Yeah. We, you know, the U.S. was no longer the junior partner in world politics uh-huh. and in European politics. Yeah, and in fact, the entire world would split. They're either on our side with us or right. they're with Soviets. Exactly. It was U.S. versus the USSR, not Great Britain versus the USSR, not France. Well, France would have been, well, you know, they're not so bad. Uh, we, we might like them. The borscht is not bad. We'll take some. The is not bad. Yeah. We'll send them some berets. A little bit of wine and they might be okay. And some cheese. Yeah. 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 Uh, But, you know, it's still, when you think about what would have happened if they had not attacked us, if 
we had just gone through a Cold War in the Pacific as opposed to a hot war in the Pacific and the Atlantic. Yeah, yeah. Because it would have been a longer time to get involved in, in Europe. Yeah. If at all. Because if Hitler decided not to attack, I mean, he would have probably yeah, eventually. Yeah, and we still did not get involved in Europe until the Germans and Italians declared war on us. Right. After Pearl Harbor, we declared war only on Japan. Exactly. And for yeah. some reason, Hitler decided. Hitler, Hitler well, declared war on us. And he did have the, they were part of the tripartite pact. But it, was it, a, but it didn't have to. Even, he didn't have even to. Even under the terms of the pact. He did not have to. Well, he could have said, "Screw you! We don't, you know, you take care of them for us, and maybe we'll come in and mop up later." But yeah, I mean, he could have done that, and he didn't. Yeah. Again, that's that was his ego. Yeah. And he thought, well, they'll either be busy with the Japanese or they're just Americans, which is what the Japanese thought. Yeah. Well, that's exactly it. Yeah. They're they're too used to uh, their lifestyle to 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 rally like this. Right. You know, Moto had it right. He awakened a sleeping giant. And I was about to say we haven't gone to sleep since then, but yeah, we have. We've slept quite a bit <laughs> here and there. Yeah. Uh, we, we have had our uh, uh, faux pas and what yeah. have you. All right. Well, I think that is a pretty excellent episode. I really like what we did there, fellas. Yeah, yeah. Good job. I mean, that was great. I, I like that we talked a lot about the lead up as well as the after. Aftermath. Yeah, that's right. Big picture stuff. That's what we're kept about it, here. Kept yeah. it organized and, and did a good job. So you guys were... On point. Very awesome. Francis, buddy, what is uh, next time? We're going to do... It's Code of Honor, of course. But we're going to do another thematic one. Uh, which we, we like these from time to time. We don't always do them, but we've been doing a lot of them lately. Uh, the next two episodes are going to be about, I think, and we all think, one of our greatest presidents, Teddy Roosevelt. Uh, I'm surprised it's actually taken us so long to get to him, because he's really so much foundational in what a lot of what we talk well, about. You know, you really got to sharpen your uh, sharpen your sword when you're taking on Teddy. There's a lot there. That's well, that, there yeah. Is. How are we going to do that? Even in two episodes, it's going to be hard. But next episode, code of honor, great quotations from the great T.R. himself. Be here. Hope you enjoyed another pointless discussion of eternal questions. Remember, new episodes publish every Friday at noon Eastern. Spread the word. We're on all the major podcast platforms. And leave us a comment or review because that helps others find us. We're on Instagram, Twitter, as well as our website, snakesandotters.com. I'm Martin. And I'm Robert. And I'm Francis. Join us next week, same snake time, same otter channel.